0: And Lord, we pray that as we consider uh, this word that your spirit has, uh, has, uh, has breathed out for us, we pray that you would grant us understanding and we pray that you would help us to respond rightly to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, good. Okay, the, uh, the outline is in the middle of the, uh, the pamphlet. You might want to refer to that. We're covering nine chapters today, and it's all genealogies. And I think I should say well done to the Bible readers just now. You did famously well. And if you're on Bible reading next week, make sure you practice beforehand, yeah? Okay, so open your Bibles, 1 Chronicles chapter 1. Well, one of the challenges of living as a Christian is that we live by faith and not by sight. And so we're told that our sins are forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross. But forgiveness is not something that you can see. And we're told that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's ascended to the throne of heaven. But we can't see his heavenly rule right now. And we're told that Christ will return one day as the judge of the living and the dead. But we don't know when it will be. We must believe God's promise by faith. Now it's not blind faith, Uh, it rests upon the sure events of history, the death and resurrection of Jesus, events promised thousands of years beforehand, attested in history and witnessed by the apostles, but it's still faith and not sight. In many ways the, the glory days of the kingdom are kind of behind us. We don't live anymore in the days of Jesus where the great crowds would gather to hear him preach and see him do great miracles and healings and exorcisms. We don't see him calm the storm or feed the hungry or raise the dead anymore. We don't live in the days of the apostles as the, as the gospel is going forth to the nations accompanied by great signs and wonders done by the hands of the apostles themselves. The kingdom's been established We belong to it, but it doesn't seem that glorious most of the time, does it? Rather, what we see before us, before our eyes, is a world that is opposed to Jesus' rule, a life that often involves suffering, and a church that usually looks weak and divided. And what is more, this has all been going on for 2,000 years or so since Jesus walked this earth. We live by faith. And not by sight. And in a world like ours, we can start to doubt. Has God forgotten his plans? Is his kingdom for real? Well, I think that could well have been the feeling of God's people in the 5th century BC. Uh, For God's people Israel, 1000 BC were the glory days when uh, King David and Solomon were at their height as they brought in this golden age where it seemed that all the promises were fulfilled. Uh, God's people were living in God's place under God's blessing and God's rule. They would built the temple uh, and its glory was seen in these tremendous riches as the nation streamed to see them. But, of course, then everything fell apart. The kingdom was divided under, under Solomon. His, his heart was turned away uh, by his wives to worship idols. And, his, and God's people continued in that idolatry ever since, ignoring the prophets God sent to warn them until eventually the northern kingdom went to exile in Assyria in 722 B.C. And then the southern kingdom went to exile in Babylon in 587 B.C. And Jerusalem was destroyed, and the temple was demolished. But after 70 years of of captivity, as we read in that that first reading, by the decree of the Persian king Cyrus in 539 BC, Israel was sent home, miraculously, told to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem. They were led by Zerubbabel, the governor, uh, descended from David himself, and they would complete the temple by 515 bc but it's now 450 bc as the chronicler writes and it's a difficult time for god's people the temple is not nearly as glorious as solomon's temple was it's certainly nothing like the, the grand temple that ezekiel had prophesied uh, there's no davidic king in israel as isaiah had promised and god's people have, have find themselves harassed by the nations around them and often opposed, and so the Chronicle of Rights, one of the most uh, neglected and uh, unread books of the Bible, one and two Chronicles. Now, I actually scoured the internet during my preparation, looking for resources to help me in my in, in preparing the sermon. And in hours of searching, I found just two sermon series on the book on the whole World Wide Web. Perhaps Well, this is going to be number three, I guess, after that. Or perhaps it's because so much of the material in 1 and 2 Chronicles is uh, repeated from earlier parts of the Bible, uh, like 1 and 2 Kings. So it seems like you've read it before. Uh, it's got nine chapters of genealogies at the start. Uh, perhaps we feel we can just skip it and move on to more interesting things. But we do don't know, don't we, from 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And God has given us the book of Chronicles, so that we may live godly lives as he intends us to. Now, I say Chronicles because Chronicles is actually one book. It's only divided into two parts because you can only fit so many words on a scroll, and so they divided it into two, but it's actually one book. And it's actually in the Hebrew Old Testament, it's the very last book in the Old Testament, the last one to be written, even after Malachi. And this book, you see, it, it, it traces the whole of Israel's history from the beginning to the end. The very first word, you notice, was Adam. And the book ends with the return from the exile. So here we, we review the whole of, of Israel's history. And the writer looks back over hundreds of years and he asks the question, what, what made Israel great in the first place? What was at the heart of Israel's existence? What's God's intention for his people? What does he want for us now? And he urges them essentially to seek his kingdom and seek his presence. Uh, Chronicles, if you like, is a motivational book. Uh, You can imagine, you know, those uh, motivational speakers that you sometimes see on the internet that are there to, you know, rouse you up to finally go on a diet or do whatever you're meant to do. Well, Chronicler is a motivational speaker. We see that very clearly in how the book ends in 2 Chronicles 36. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And notice the last word of the book. It's literally one word. Arise. Up. Go. Go. And it kind of it ends mid sentence. We, we actually have the full degree, if, uh, decree. If you just went to the next page to Ezra, you would see that. But he cuts it off deliberately halfway through. Up, arise! If you're one of God's people, seek His kingdom, seek His temple. And in, and in between Adam at the beginning and this this uh, Cyrus's decree at the end, we focus on those two great kings, David. And Solomon we have the ideal kingdom of David first uh, and then in 2 Chronicles we see the ideal temple that Solomon builds and finally we see the decline of the kingdom as it's divided in two we look we look at the good kings and the bad kings and we see how God is going to restore his kingdom and so here's the point of the chronicle this is God's big project this is what he's working on in history. He's building a kingdom. He's building a temple. And he wants us to line up. The question we're left with is, will we seek his kingdom? Will we seek his temple? Will we arise and get going? Well, we begin then with the first nine chapters of genealogies which, with which the chronicler opens his book. And of course, for modern Bible readers like us, we often find these Tremendously boring and probably irrelevant we can't even pronounce the names half of the time although the readers did well We might perhaps wonder what on earth is the use of nine chapters of names except perhaps to help you Choose a potential baby name maybe Victor and uh, Abby or Melissa Daniel. You can look it up But they're not just a random collection of names here They're, they're, They're crafted together here, to show God's unwavering commitment to His people. His desire to fulfill His promises to them. And so these names are, are, are a reminder that although they are weak and they are struggling, God's people are still part of His covenant. They are part of God's big plan to build his kingdom they're struggling away sure in, in that small corner of the persian empire they're wondering if god's promises are ever going to become a reality but here in the genealogies they find hope they have heard of something very big indeed now we need to grasp something of the structure of the genealogies before we dive in uh, we'll see in chapter 1 that we begin with Adam and we go to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, to whom God promised blessing for all the nations. Then we have nearly three chapters dedicated to the tribe of Judah, and in particular to the descendants of King David. In chapters 5 and 7, we, have, uh, we deal ever so briefly with all of the northern tribes, the ten tribes, mainly focusing on their failures and their sins. In chapter 6, right in the middle, we have 81 verses devoted to the Levites and their ministry in the temple. In chapter 8, we have Benjamin, one of the tribes that was loyal to King David. And then finally, chapter 9, a list of the returned exiles. And so there's three great themes that come out here which uh, uh, which you will see on your sheet. God's plan for his elect, God's king for his people, God's temple for his presence and therefore hope for the returned exiles. Well, the first one then, God's plan for his elect. And the, and the book opens with that in the very first verse with the word Adam. The Chronicle is taking us right back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. It's almost a direct quote from Genesis, different parts. And from here he takes us from Adam to Abraham. It's actually a brilliant opening to the book when you think about it. He's saying, look, you may not feel anything in particular, but you are part of something very big. You're part of God's universal plan for all of humanity, you're part of something that has consequences for all the nations. But we notice very quickly that the author has a very particular focus. Throughout the genealogies, he's constantly zooming in and zooming in and zooming in, especially on God's elect, his chosen people who will carry the promise. So verses 1 to 3, we, we forget about Cain and Abel, we just keep the elect line. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Then we're given Noah's son's names, Shem, ham and japheth uh, and then in a characteristic fashion as you'll do throughout the, these nine chapters he traces the non-elect lines first and then saves the elect line for last so first in verses five to seven we have the sons of japheth and then in verses eight to sixteen we have the sons of ham now he's not talking about bacon just in case you were wondering <laughs> Uh, And you notice there that the the sons of Ham here, they're they're actually all of Israel's enemies. Among that list you have Cush, you have Egypt, you have all the Canaanite groups, they're all there. And finally, having looked at those two, we look at the elect line, we look at Shem. And uh, Shem, by the way, is uh, is the word from which we derive the word Semitic, i.e. anti-Semitic or anti-Jew, it comes from the word Shem. And then in verse 19, we're introduced to Eber, he's one of Shem's descendants, and that's the word from which we get the the name Hebrew, Eber, Hebrew. One of his sons, we're told in verse 18, is Peleg, Peleg means divided, and he was the son alive at the time of the Tower of Babel, when God scattered all the nations. And eventually, as we trace through all the names, we get to verse 27, and we get to Abraham. And it's as if at this point the authors wanting us to remember those grand promises that God made to, to Abraham in Genesis 12. Do you remember them? They're on the screen. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse. In you will all the families of the earth be blessed. So I like to summarize it as FLOB. Right? F-L-O-B, fame, a great name for Abraham, land, a place in God's presence, offspring, a great nation, and blessing. Blessing for Israel and the world. Flop. And so by this, this, this opening, this first chapter, we're reminded all of the nations belong to God. But Abraham's descendants are special. And in them lies the hope of blessing for the world. Well, now again, we must narrow our focus as we trace Abraham's line. And we again zoom in on the elect line in verse 28. The sons of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. And again, we're given the non-elect ones first. So Ishmael, Muslims claim that they're descended from Ishmael. I don't know if it's actually true. But in verse 29, we've got the descendants of Ishmael. Then in verse 32 to 33, we've got the sons of Keturah, who was Abraham's concubine. And then finally, we get to the elect line in verse 34. Abraham fathered Isaac, the sons of Isaac, Esau and Israel, which was Jacob's other name. Now, of course, we remember God chose Jacob and he didn't choose Esau. Uh, And so now we trace esau's line they're later known as the edomites and we trace them through for the rest of chapter one and then in verse 43 we read of the kings of edom it says there these are the kings who reigned in the land of edom before any king reigned over the people of israel so there's esau's line they multiply they have kings but now we come to chapter 2 and our focus shifts back to the elect line to jacob to israel We read, these are the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. They're the 12 tribes of Israel. But it seems that out of all those 12 tribes, there's only two that really matter to the writer. That's Judah and Levi. Now we're at point two, God's king for his people. It's quite remarkable, actually, that out of all these 12 tribes, that Judah gets so much attention. He's got nearly three chapters, over 110 verses, just for Judah. Levi is a close second. He's got in chapter 6, he's got 81 verses just about him. The the third place is Benjamin, right at the end, chosen because of his loyalty to David. He's got 40-odd verses in chapter 8. And so we're zooming in. He's saying... The way your, your, your attention needs to be is on the line of Judah. And as we start this section, we're, we're reminded again of, of the unfaithfulness of Judah. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. That's a great name for a guy, isn't it? Shelah. <laughs> These three, Bathsheba, the Canaanite, bore to him. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of The Lord. And he put him to death. That's a great way to start off the family line, isn't it? Uh, Chapter 2, verse 7, a bit later. Also in this family is the son of Kami, Achan, the troubler of Israel who broke faith in the matter of the devoted things. Remember Achan in the book of Joshua, storing up all the forbidden treasures under his tent and God finds out and and he's swallowed up into the ground. He and all his family. That's from the line of Judah as well. But the focus really here is on King David. We see that in chapter 2, verse 9. The sons of Hezron that were born to him. Jeremiel, Ram, and Shulabai. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon, prince of the sons of Judah. Nashon fathered Salmon. Now we've got fish in the family tree. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered Eliab, his firstborn. Abinadab the second. Shimeo the third. Nathanael the fourth, Radai the fifth, Ozzam the sixth, David the seventh. David is listed seventh, probably because seven is the key number. There was actually eight sons, but he was the ideal king, the model king for his people. And now having traced, now are we having traced out the rest of Judah's line in chapter two, in chapter three, we zoom in on David himself and David's sons. We have all the kings of Judah listed. We begin in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, with the six sons born to David during his seven and a half year reign in Hebron. Remember, he reigned in the south over the two tribes for seven and a half years before the whole kingdom for for 33 more years. So we read chapter 3, verse 4. Six were born to him in Hebron where he reigned for seven years and six months. He reigned 33 years in Jerusalem. Uh, And then in verses 5 to 26, we trace out all the sons that were born in Jerusalem, and in particular, the sons of Solomon, the kings of Israel. Uh, Notice the list ends in verse 17 with someone called Jeconiah, the captive. It's another name for Jehoiachin, the one who was carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. And from there, the the, the kingly line continues, even in the exile. In verse 19, we come down to Zerubbabel. He was the one who led the exile's home and rebuilt the temple. And it continues on at least another six or seven generations all the way into the author's own day. That's how we know it's 450 BC. And what's his point? He's saying God's promise for his king is still central in the nation of Israel. God's promise for His King is still central in the nation of Israel. Uh, Later on in the book, in chapter 17, we're going to be reminded of that promise. It's on the screen. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. And so this family tree, this celebration of all the descendants of King David all the way down to the current day is their celebration of hope That one day, this promised king will arrive and bring in this eternal kingdom. Bring in the liberation that they are so hoping for. They're part of something big. An eternal kingdom. A temple for the presence of God that will stand forever. And this is what all of human history is about. From Adam at the beginning, God has been narrowing in one nation, One family, one kingly line, one king to rule over them all. That's Lord of the Rings, isn't it? And the chapter concludes with Judah's family tree in chapter 4. Now, hidden away in chapter 4 are these really intriguing verses about the prayer of Jabez? Just look forward to chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Is there any Jabezes here today? This is where you got your name. It says this. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. Now, the the word Jabez, it sounds like pain. So it's as if his mother called him, Ouch, right, when he was born. (laughs) Great name, Yes. And so Jabez prays in verse 10 because he's not obviously not very happy with his name. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, that your right hand may, might be with me, that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. It's interesting verses that are just tucked away here in these long lines of genealogies. It's as if. Jabez feels that pain is his destiny and he longs for things to be different and he prays about it and God answers the prayer. Blessing, enlarged territory, freedom from pain. He must be very happy. Now let's just pause on these verses for a moment to think about how we, do, how we shouldn't apply the Old Testament. Now this, this prayer of Jabez was actually turned into a hugely popular book you may have heard of it the author said in the preface i want to teach you a daring prayer that god always answers he goes on in chapter one god really does have unclaimed blessings waiting for you my friend i know it sounds impossible even embarrassingly suspicious in our self-serving day yet that very exchange your want for god's plenty has been his loving will for your life from eternity past Is it possible God wants you to be selfish in your prayers, to ask for more and more again from your Lord? See what he's saying as he reads these verses? We should be like Jabez. We should pray to God to enlarge our territory, by which he means enlarge our business, enlarge our family, enlarge our influence. And God will give it to you just like he gave it to Jabez. He goes on. He says, When you start asking in earnest, begging for more influence and responsibility with which to honour him, God will bring opportunities and people in your path. Simply put, God favours those who ask. He holds back nothing from those who want and earnestly long for what he wants. What do you think of that prayer of Jabez? And what do you think of his book? Well, writing in response... One theologian, Craig Blomberg, he says that nothing in the text permits anyone else to claim the same promise, any more than we can infer from chapter 4, that other people have the right to kill the inhabitants of fertile farmland in order to possess it as the Simeonites did. That's a convincing argument, isn't it? Well, why should you copy Jabez, but you shouldn't copy the Simeonites who are killing people and taking their property? Well, how do we apply this prayer properly? There's a few things we could say. Firstly, we could say that there's other prayers like this in the book of Chronicles. Just in the next chapter, chapter 5, we read this. When they prevailed over them, the Hagrites and all who were with them were given into their hands, for they cried out to God in the battle, and he granted their urgent plea because they trusted in him. They carried off their livestock, 50,000 of their camels, 250,000 sheep, 2,000 donkeys, and 100,000 men alive, for many fell because the war was of God and they lived in their place until the exile. See, there's, a, there's another uh, example in those, those verses of how one of the other tribes enlarged their borders through a humble trust in God. Now, it's as if this prayer has been included for the encouragement of His people. Remember, there they are. They're weak. They're suffering. They're, they're thinking God's forgotten His covenants. And God says, whatever pain, he will bless. Trust him. Seek first his kingdom. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, this is all in physical terms. But in the New Testament, it's, it's transformed into spiritual realities. Sure, God will bless those who trust in him as they seek first his kingdom. But it won't mean that you'll get rich and he'll give you everything that you want. He'll give you forgiveness now. And one day Jesus will return and free you from pain forever. It's a matter of timing. So pray, trust the Lord, ask. He will fulfill it eventually. So there's chapters 2 to 4. Israel is reminded to focus on their king. The one who's going to set up this eternal kingdom. And as they, they focus on their, their king, the, the chronicle is hoping they're going to arise, they're going to seek his kingdom, trust him in their pain, prayerfully depend upon him. Well, now we come to point three: God's temple for his presence. Now in chapters five and seven, we focus ever so briefly on the northern tribes, their successes, and their failures, and it's like a little sweep, if you like, from conquest to exile in the details we're given. We, get, we begin at the end of chapter 4 with the tribe of Simeon, and in verse 39, we're told of their successful conquest attempt. Look at verse 39, chapter 4, verse 39. They journeyed to the entrance of Gidor, to the east side of the valley, to seek pasture for their flocks. Where they found rich good pasture and the land was very broad quiet and peaceful for the former inhabitants there belonged to ham these registered by name came in the days of hezekiah king of judah and destroyed their tents and the meonites who were found there and marked them for destruction to this day and settled in their place because there was no pasture there for their flocks and some of them 500 men of the Simeonites, went to mount seir Remember that's Esau's line, having as their leaders Pelatiah, Neariah, and Rephiah, and Uziel, the sons of Ishi, and they defeated the remnant of the Amalekites who'd escaped, and they've lived there to this day. So you see the Simeonites, they they conquer the tribes. They, they expand their territory, their faithful Israelites. Then we come to chapter 5, and Reuben. And we're reminded why Reuben isn't listed first, even though he's the firstborn. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. It's referring to that story in, in Genesis where Reuben ends up sleeping with his father's wife, Tamar, in this, this horrible, horrific act, really, of incest. And he loses the inheritance. But verse 10, we also see that the Reubenites are not so bad. They too conquer. They too expand their territory. Verse 10 says, in the days of Saul, they waged war against the Hagrites who fell into their hand. They lived in their tents throughout all the region of Gilead. Next, chapter 5, verse 11 to 22, we have the tribe of Gad. Gad. And in verses 20 to 22, we're, we're reminded of their faith as they, they cry out to God to expand their territory. We just read it a moment ago. And then finally, we come to the tribe of Manasseh. And we're reminded of how things ended for all these northern tribes. Good verse, Chapter 5, verse 25. But they broke faith with the God of their fathers and whored after the gods of the peoples of the land, whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of tiglath Beleza, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tried of Manasseh, and brought them to Hala, Haba, Hara, and the river Gozan to this day. How did the story end for the northern kingdom? They were unfaithful. They were conquered. They were taken into exile, never to return. And so it's with this, this, this failure of God's people, their sinfulness in our, in our minds, that we come to chapter 6 and to the Levites. And the importance of the Levites is shown by the fact that they're right here in the center of this section. Not only that, but there's, there's 81 verses, second only to Judah. By placing it right here in the center, by giving it so many verses... It's as if the author is highlighting for us the temple and the worship and the priests. This is really important stuff. And again we zoom in on the priestly line of Aaron. Look how the chapter begins. Chapter 6, verse 1. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Kohath, Amran, Ishai, Hebron, and Uziel. The children of Amram, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam the sons of Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Itamar. And from there we continue down in verse 10 to Azariah. He was the priest who served at Solomon's temple. Then we come down, verse 15, to Jehozadak. And we're told that he went into exile when the Lord sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So again we have the priests all the way down to the end. Then we have listed all those who served in song at the temple. We read in verse 31. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they performed their service according to their order. And then we zoom in on the priests themselves in verses 49 to 52. But Aaron and his sons made offerings and on the altar of burnt offering, on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. And then finally, verse 53 to 81, we have listed all the cities that the Levites lived in. So again, it's as if the the, the chronicler is, is saying to us here, here is the hope for God's covenant people. The hope is with Judah and the hope is with Levi. The hope is with the king who's going to rule an eternal kingdom. The hope is with the priests who will serve in a temple where there will be forgiveness of sins through sacrifice, where there will be worship that is offered to the living God in response. Here is God's intention. This is God's grand plan for history. A great kingdom where he dwells in the midst of his people, having saved them and receiving their worship. That's point three. Point four. We're nearly there. God's hope for for his returned exiles. God's hope for all his returned exiles. So chapter seven, we go back to the northern tribes again. Issachar, Benjamin, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Asher. We won't read it. In chapter 8, we come to Benjamin, and we said that he got over 40 verses. And it's quite shocking, actually, that Benjamin gets such a mention. Uh, Benjamin, uh, after all, in the the book of Judges, the, the, the sin of the Benjamites was so great that all the other tribes waged war against them and almost wiped them out entirely, Judges 19 and 20. In the book of 1 Samuel, Saul is a Benjaminite. And he is so disobedient that the whole royal line passes from the Benjaminites. So the Benjaminites are just known for their their disobedience and their sinfulness and the judgment that they experience as a result. And yet here they have one whole chapter in chapter 8 devoted to them. And the point seems to be there is hope for all of God's people. In fact, chapters 2 to 8, when you put them all together, they're concerned with showing how all of the tribes lived in the land. And and all types of people were were among them. There was good ones, there was bad ones, there, there, there was the ugly and the sinful. All the tribes are there, the northern ones and the southern ones and the ones that live on the Transjordan. There's the foreigners there, They're the ones that were involved in mixed marriages. They're there too. There's ordinary people whose names we only remember because they're here alongside the heroes of Israel's past. They're all here. They're all mentioned name by name. And the point I take it is that there is hope for all of God's returned people. And in chapter 9, we come to the climax with the genealogy of the returned exiles. And once again, note how it opens, chapter 9, verse 1. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies. That All Israel was recorded in genealogies. And these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and some of the people of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh lived in Jerusalem. And so chapter 9 is a message of hope for sinful people under the judgment of God. All Israel is recorded... They've all breached faith in the most horrible of ways, in their persistent idolatry. They deserve the judgment of God, but God doesn't wipe them out entirely. They return. They dwell again in Jerusalem. They will rebuild the temple. And they're all mentioned here. Verse 10 has the priests, those who do the work of the service of the house of God. Verse 14 has the Levites. Verse 17 has the gatekeepers. We're told that they are entrusted to be over the chambers of the treasures of the house of God. They lodged around the house of God. On them they lay the duty of watching. They had the charge of opening it every morning. The gatekeepers. Verse 28, they have the people in charge of the utensils in the temple. Verse 33, we have the singers again. Who are in the chamber and they sing day and night. They're always on duty. And so here is the grand return of God's people. God's great king who will rule forever. God's great temple where God will dwell with his people. And here then is the hope for sinful people under the judgment of God. Hope of a return. Hope of a restored worship as the people of God. We've made it through nine chapters. Now, how do they apply to us today? Well, of course, it's no accident that Matthew begins his gospel in exactly the same way, with a long list of names. And Matthew 1 begins with that genealogy to declare that that long-awaited king who would rule over the nations forever has arrived, That, that, that truly elect one, the one to which all of history has been narrowing down towards, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam. He's come. He's come to be our king. He's come to bring us out of the exile of God's judgment. He's come to rule over all of the nations. He's come to bring blessing to the ends of the earth, the perfect king who will rule over the eternal kingdom has come. And of course that's not all because following that genealogy Matthew reminds us that not only has the king come but that that true temple for which they hoped has come as well. Remember Matthew 1:23. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us because Jesus was God in the flesh. He was God taking up residence with his people. He was the the, the true temple to which the chronicler was looking forward. He was the one come as the high priest to to offer the perfect sacrifice to save sinful people. And so as Jesus dies on the cross, there he takes that punishment that we deserve, that that should rightly cut us off. From relationship with God, and he makes it possible for each one of us to return, not to return to, to Jerusalem, but to come out of our exile from the Garden of Eden, to return spiritually in, into our relationship with God, to one day return to that to that new Jerusalem, into the very presence of God Himself. And so has God forgotten his plans? For us? The answer is surely no. If we are Christian, we are linked to the King. Our names are written not in the book of Chronicles. Our names are written in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. And we know because our name is written in that book in heaven, God will never abandon His promises He never abandoned his promises to Adam, to Abraham, to David, to Jesus. And he will not abandon us also. We too are part of something very big. Something that is real. And it might not seem very impressive. And it might not look very spectacular now. It might seem like God's not doing much at all really. As we struggle on as God's people. The Chronicle says, look back to the history of the past to find the hope for the future. Because we know there is a day when God's kingdom will be established in full, and God will establish all of his elect from all of the nations, and God's people will live in his perfect presence and worship him in song forever and ever. Remember how the Bible ends in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And if that is true, then the message of Chronicles is the same message to us. Arise, up, go, seek the kingdom, seek God's presence. It's no uh, accident, therefore, that Jesus says this in his ministry. He begins his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And at the very end of the gospel, what does he say? All authority is given to me, I'm the king. So, up, go, make disciples of all nations. And so, if you're connected to the people of God, get up. Off you go and serve the King. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed that our names are written in the book of life, that Jesus has come as our King and our High Priest, that he's paid for our sins in full on the cross. Thank you that we can return to you and one day we will be in your presence. So as we wait for that day in this world that often seems very uh, ordinary, we pray that you'd help us to press on to keep seeking first your kingdom and looking to the hope before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.